Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And I'm Irene. And today we're talking about mochi sex pots. Just before we get started on this episode, I wanted to mention our sponsor for today, Studio Sweden. Studio make quality headphones which are both beautiful and have excellent sound quality. And I would encourage you to check out their website at studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com. And if you like their product, you can use the promo code QueerAsFact, all one word, to get 15% off there. I have some content warnings before we start this episode. There will be explicit discussions of sex, discussions of rape and bestiality, period typical homophobia and racism from the 16th century to the 21st century, and outdated language for third gender people in quotes. I'd also just like to note that the Mochi people are from Peru, and so a lot of the scholarship on this topic was written in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, so I've had to rely on a lot of scholars quoted in translation secondhand by other scholars and summaries written by other scholars and things like that. So before we talk about the pots, I'm going to start with a brief introduction about the Mochi people. So the Moche, and they're also called the Mochica civilization, existed in the fertile valleys in the north coast of what is now Peru, from around 100 to around 750 CE. And after 750, distinctly Moche culture disappears with the spread of other kind of cultures from the area. The Moche left behind impressive monumental architecture, including two temples known as Huaca de la Luna and Huaca del Sol. Huaca del Sol is the bigger of the two, and it's about 41 meters tall. It was about 50 meters tall. And then... And then it eroded over time. Okay, yeah. So we have a lot of art and iconography and other archaeological evidence through which we can learn about the Moche. So we know that they supported themselves through fishing and through agriculture, which was facilitated by complex irrigation systems. They had very large cities, including their capital, which is called Moche, where the name we call them comes from. But they had no writing system, which means we're also lacking a lot of information about them. And at least 700 years separate when the mochi existed and the first colonial records that we have. So we can get a good idea of how they lived, but it's much harder to get a good idea of what they believed and how they understood things like gender and sexuality. Are there any, like you say, it's a good 700 years until the first colonial records appear. Are there any records from like other South American people? Uh, not that I'm aware of about mochi, no. Okay. What we're talking about today specifically is a collection of around 500 pots. That's a lot of pots. They have more pots. 500 of them are erotic pots. Like, I imagine this would be like the Warren Cup, and maybe there were a few of them? Nah, it's like a whole genre of mochi pottery is erotic pottery. Okay. How many total pots do we have? I think a few thousand. Okay, so that's a solid percentage that is erotic. Yeah, I'm not sure of the exact number, but like, there's a lot of erotic pottery. Yeah, very okay. good. The mochi often made pots in the shape of people or in the shape of animals. I'm just going to show you a picture so you have a vague idea of what we're talking about. So the mochi often constructed pots in the shape of people or animals. And these specific 500 pots are in the shape of people, animals, and skeletons performing a wide variety of sex acts. Skeletons? Skeletons, yeah. I look forward to more information on what is involved in that business. Well, soon you're going to learn about gay skeleton sex, so... <laughs> <laughs> this is the best thing since the spook side in the <laughs> Yeah. So these depictions of sex mostly include anal sex, oral sex, and masturbation, and they're noticeably lacking in depictions of vaginal sex. 
But also it's long been thought that they're lacking in depictions of homosexual sex. So, so but- only anal sex with a man and a woman, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. Long been thought in that we now know that's nonsense. I'm not going to discuss whether that's nonsense okay. or not. I personally think that's a bit of nonsense. The birds outside also think it's <laughs> yeah. a bit of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, so basically they've been thought to be depicting anal sex between a man and a woman, or a woman giving a man oral sex, and so on. And so this has confused scholars for a long time. What has confused scholars The fact that they've depicted a whole variety of sex acts, but not vaginal sex between a man and a woman. Okay. To add to the difficulty of talking about these pots, a lot of them come without any archaeological context. So they were looted from graves in, like the first half of the 20th century and before that and probably after that because that's how people are and they've later turned up in museums or in private collections without any information about where they came from or what they were found with or anything like that given that they were probably looted from graves they were probably part of funeral offerings that would have been buried with a body but beyond that we know almost nothing about the actual use do we have any more information to make us think that they're probably looted from graves beyond that's usually where people get artifacts? I didn't find anything specific on why people say they're looted from graves, but I think it's just that people loot graves. Okay, so hypothetically they could have looted the sex pot storehouse or something. Really. I mean, I guess hypothetically they could have, yeah. I okay. mean, graves survive, stores don't. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And presumably they've found... Some in graves, untouched. Yes, I think so, but not many. Okay. Okay. They're mostly out of context. So yeah, we can speculate a lot about what these pots were for, and obviously scholars have speculated a lot about this, but I'm not going to enter into that speculation in too much detail, because it's all pretty much just like, think of ideas of what they could have been used for. There's not much to go on here. So what we are going to talk about, given that we can't really speculate that much about their use, is what we can and what we can't read about gender and sexuality in moche culture from what is depicted on the pots, and also how scholars have interpreted this and how their own biases have coloured their interpretation of this. Ah, good. The bread and butter of the Queer's Fact podcast. Yeah, we're going to drag some scholars from the 20th century. (laughs) It's possible that the reason that there are so few pots showing homosexual sex is that they were destroyed. By modern... Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, I'm disappointed, but unsurprised. Yeah. yeah. So there are reports of this happening in the early 20th century. The psychiatrist Emilio Valdezan, who wrote about the pots in 1915, noted, quote, A poorly understood modesty has led many collectors to truncate the scenes of sodomy or pederasty in these pots. So there is one example we have of a pot which shows two men, and so their genitals are clearly visible, so we know that they have penises, whether or not they're men we can discuss later on, but they're having anal sex, which has obviously been smashed and glued back together, and their heads have been destroyed. So, I mean, maybe that's what truncate means. Maybe it was clearer from their heads that they were men. Yeah. That could be... Giant (laughs) moustaches. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what was fashionable to moche people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they had different, like, headdresses and different hairstyles for men and women, as many cultures do. Women had long plaits and men wore certain hats and stuff like that. Plaits or hats. Yeah. Those are the two genders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are the genders, plaits or hats. Another thing to note is that both Valdezan and an archaeologist called César Teo, writing around the same time, so in the early 20th century, mentioned collections of moche pottery, including depictions of bestiality with llamas. What? Okay. 
And that's something we have no surviving examples of now. So given that they were saying these existed and they no longer seem to exist, uh-huh. that definitely points towards things that were considered inappropriate being destroyed. Yep. Yep. Okay. Do we have any more facts about these llama ones? Uh, I didn't really look into the llama ones because I was talking about the um, non-bestiality ones. <laughs> so there's a couple of reasons I want to talk about for this destruction and like obviously the root of this is homophobia. Mm. The second reason beyond just obviously homophobia that I wanted to mention is that beginning around the 1920s there was a movement in Peru which also exists in other Latin American countries but we're talking about Peru today known as Indigenismo and Indigenismo is the construction of national identity around the nature's indigenous cultures including pre-Columbian civilizations such as the Moche. Civilizations like the Moche were held up as being equal if not superior to old world cultures such as Rome and Greece and so the idea that they'd undertaken what were then in the 20th century considered depraved sex acts such as homosexuality or bestiality didn't fit with this image Mm. okay Mm. yeah but I mean there were similar depictions of Rome and Greece yeah but I think that comes down to not only being equal to old world civilizations but superior being like yeah well yours did pederasty Uh, okay. ours didn't kind of thing and also people broke Roman and Greek depictions of yeah, true. sex acts they considered inappropriate. We did an episode on that. True. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So with the destruction of these pots, by 1965, the archaeologist Raphael Laco Hoyle, who would have been familiar with the writings of Baldassan and Teo, so would have known that there was evidence that these pots had been destroyed. Nonetheless, Laco Hoyle was able to write, In none of the pre-Inca cultures have we so far found any representations of pederasty or bestiality. And there was no evidence left to disprove him. So we think he was lying, basically. Yeah, he was constructing his national identity. He was Peruvian himself. Okay. And he then goes on to conclude, The ancient Peruvians did not deviate towards homosexuality, either in marriage or outside it. The museum, which holds, I think, the largest collection of these pots, or at least, like, a very major collection of these pots, today is the Laco Museum. And it's pretty much best known of having these erotic pots in it now so take that Raphael. (laughs) (laughs) So even when evidence did turn up contrary to his argument that there was no homosexuality in ancient Peru he remained very determined to ignore it. The mark of a good scholar. Yes. Yeah. So there is one pot depicting a skeleton having anal sex with a man as I mentioned. All right all right all right. (laughs) (laughs) Obvious question here. Yes. So like skeletons can't do that. Is the skeleton the penetrated or the penetrating partner in this situation? <laughs> I believe the skeleton is the penetrating partner. I All right. Really so, like, like, with what? <laughs> Look, I wondered that too. Strap on bone dildo? What's going on here? <laughs> So one of the struggles of studying these pots, which not only I have encountered, but scholars writing about them have encountered, is that we mostly have to look at them through pictures, and you can't get that good an idea necessarily through a picture. Right to this museum and be like... I do have a picture of this pot, but I'll show it to you. I would love to see this pot. So the skeleton's genitals, whatever and however they may be your work, are not visible. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. In the picture. Yeah, they're not visible. I'm trying not to make boner jokes, but... Just get them out of the <laughs> No, there's an endless well. Um, so whatever skeleton genitals exist are fully inside of the real human live being. Yeah, yeah. It was depicted. Okay. Can you imagine the sound of two skeletons having sex? <laughs> that oh, sorry. Noises. <laughs> yeah, that sounds on skeleton. <laughs> I don't mean to make fun of this culture, but 
that skeletons exist here. <laughs> so we're going to talk about why skeletons are here. Yeah. Okay. All right. We start. can talk about why skeletons are here. Laka Hoyle also noted that the man, the passive partner, the living one, his eyes are closed. Therefore, he said, quote, It may be, of course, that the first man is dreaming of homosexual union, and that what is depicted is his dream, suggesting that homosexual sex never happened, but this is just a depiction of a dream that it may have happened. But, like, (laughs) I still feel like that challenges his idea that there was no deviance in indigenous Peruvian culture, because dreaming about having homosexual sex that you're not allowed to have isn't not gay. (laughs) (laughs) Even non-erotic Machipot suffered this attempt to erase any suggestions of homoeroticism or homosexual relationships. There are several pots that depict people or animals sitting side by side and embracing, and while depictions of a man and a woman, or even, say, two monkeys embracing, for example, have often been grouped together with the more explicitly erotic vessels when people are kind of making lists of pots or things like that, Mm -hmm. depictions of two men embracing have been categorised with medical collections alongside pots representing disease because they've been assumed to represent conjoined twins. (laughs) Why is this a thing? (laughs) Why does this come up, like, more than once in the history of humanity? Because we'd rather believe that conjoined twins are weirdly common than we would that some people are gay. Or even that men sit side by side in this case. I was going to say, like, there's no suggestion here that the embracing is erotic, is there? No, they're just sitting side by side. Conjoined twins are more common than men hugging, guys. You heard it here first. Mm Mm-hmm. These categorizations where two men sitting side by side is put in medical lists of medical pots are sometimes used even into the 21st century and therefore are kind of homoerotic male-male image may just be missed out of somebody who's trying to study Mm. what relationships are shown in pots. Yeah, yeah, I see. As I mentioned before, when you asked how many homosexual pots there are, um, it's worth noting that some scholars argue that there never were any. And I'm not talking about, like, Laco Hoyle here. I'm talking about more modern people. Mm-hmm. So um, Mary Weissmantle, for example, writing in 2004, suggests that the evidence we have of them being destroyed, so things like Valdezan saying they existed and were destroyed, was actually him misinterpreting what the pots had depicted, and so interpreting female-male anal sex as male-male anal sex. So what does she think happened with that one pot that was literally broken and then glued back together, which depicts two men having sex? I'm not sure how she factors that into arguments. Suspicious. <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't factor into that argument. But basically her argument is that we in Western culture associate anal sex with gay men. Mm. And therefore if we see a picture of two people having anal sex where it's not immediately clear what their sex is, we assume they're gay men. How clear is it that these pots are depicting anal sex and not vaginal sex? Varying levels of clear, and that's something else that I was going to mention. Okay. So there's one pot that is generally accepted to depict a man and a woman having anal sex. In 1909, the Argentinian ethnologist Robert Lehman Nietzsche described the passive partner on this pot saying, quote, the vulva is reproduced with unquestionable clarity. But in 2015, the scholars Janusz Voloshin and Katarzyna Pivova argued that what Lehman Nietzsche thought was a very clearly depicted vulva was actually the figure's scrotum and that the passive partner was also a man. Does she think that they weren't destroyed then? Or... She thinks that they were mistakenly identified as two men having sex and therefore some were destroyed, but that there they... were never any. Okay, so these pots that she cannot see because they've been destroyed. Yes. 
and that a scholar tells us were destroyed because they depicted sex between two men. She's saying deaths weren't gay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's her argument. You correct. You. Correct. You do you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like, all right, whatever. Yeah, so that that's what's happening there. Can I just say for the record that I hate interpreting material culture so much, and I did an entire degree to get away from this. I know. But <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Hey, but, but think of that skeleton and yeah, how good it was. That's true. <laughs> yeah, so that part that I just showed you where we were discussing whether it's vulva or scrotum that is depicted and therefore whether the passive partner is a man or a woman. Um, Voloshin and Pivova also point out that um, both partners, loincloths, body paint, and the headgear they're wearing are traditionally masculine. Well, that seems fairly telling. Yeah. So they're dressed as men. They may or may not have penises. We're not sure. I mean, one of them Sorry, does. one of them does. One of them definitely does. <laughs> but one may or may not. We don't know. But it looks like it's two men. And if they're right about that, then this pot is uh, the only fully preserved moche depiction of definitely male-male sex to have escaped destruction. And it's worth noting that this pot was exported from Peru to Chile and then to Argentina in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't in Peru when oh. these pots would have been destroyed. Ah. And it's since come back. Talking about their destruction aside, the moche pots were largely ignored by scholars for a long time. And when they were written about, they were described in very subjective and pretty unhelpful ways. Cesar Teo, who I've mentioned, the archaeologist, described them in 1909 as showing, quote, aberrations and scarcely imaginable sexual excesses. Mm-hmm. And scholars sought a variety of explanations for why such graphic and what they thought was inappropriate sex was depicted. They rarely, if ever, addressed the idea that the moche may have just had different sexual mores to them and this may have just been fine and normal in moche culture. So instead, they blame everything from uh, cocaine use. (laughs) (laughs) So just like drug-fueled skeleton sex pot production. Yeah. Ugh, I love it. Correct. 19th century scholars. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a 20th century scholars. Oh, sorry. 20th century scholars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so cocaine use. Another explanation given is ritual, ritual cranial deformation. So um, altering of the skull, causing um, hallucinations and crazed pot producing. <laughs> There's no evidence of this cranial deformation ever occurring in much culture. All right. They just pulled this out of nowhere. Remember the conversation we had regarding Billy Tipton about the way that people will go to wild outlandish <laughs> explanations rather than the <laughs> obvious truth? Yeah, <laughs> we're here again. So um, there are cultures that have altered the skull yeah. ritual. Yes, yes. Do they do crazed homosexual pottery? I don't know. I would love it if they did. <laughs> Maybe they do. We need to look into this. Maybe that will be our next episode. Maybe so. <laughs> but yeah, the Moche didn't, to our knowledge, ritually alter the skull. How many... How many Moche were... bodies do we have? Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. That's such a brave thing to be involved in, like, pre-modern medicine. Ritual skull altering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that even about just, like, piercings and things. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. That's Childbirth. True. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like there's a lot of factors involved in childbirth and, like, why you decide to have a child. But piercings are literally just like, you know what? I feel like sticking a hole through my ear to hang something pretty in it. Like, that's it. That's the reasoning. And people did it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So you asked before why there are so many skeletons in these pots. 
Uh, Lotho Hoyle, speaking of 20th century explanations of this, suggests that they are moralistic and that the moral is that sex kills. (laughs) (laughs) They're the uh, the, uh, Grim Reaper AIDS ad. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) This is the 7th century Grim Reaper AIDS ad. Oh. It's probably like the Grim Reaper syphilis ad or whatever they have. Yeah, that's basically what he says, is, um... He presents either a moral or a preventing STDs explanation. But, yeah, that's his, his explanation. All right. <laughs> I mean... Fine. Look, that's historical precedent. <laughs> Do you mean the AIDS? Yes. <laughs> the AIDS is not historical precedent for this, like, early current era post. I need to know that you know this. I know, I know. It's For okay. us to continue this podcast. <laughs> um, in a more, possibly more legitimate explanation, but also one that we really can't verify, the scholar Michael Horswell has speculated that if procreative or reproductive sex represents life, then non-procreative sex, such as what's depicted on all these parts, including anal sex, may represent death. And that's why skeletons are here. To quote the historian Susan Berg in 1993, the submersion of the phallus, organ of vitality, origins, and continuation into the bowel might be seen metaphorically to duplicate the process of burial into an earthly grave. No, it doesn't. No, what? it doesn't. Why no, it doesn't. So into the symbology of the phallus. <laughs> it's not like the central pillar of human society. There are some who disagree with you. I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> I fight people about this often. <laughs> this is what I mean, where I just don't care for interpreting material culture. I want no part in it. <laughs> I understand. And I, like, I've done a fair bit of archaeology, and I can confirm that archaeologists just make stuff up. And that's what history is. Yeah, but archaeologists do it more than historians. And if you're an archaeologist and you're mad, I'm an archaeologist too. And archaeologists make stuff up. Okay. Like, I... Okay. <laughs> so do you have any more comments I, on the uh, phallus oh, buried in the earthly grave? Leave my good bony man alone. <laughs> this guy's ass is the earthly grave. Like, that's I it. don't know what to say about <laughs> that, that. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so many terrible pickup lines. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but they yeah. were just cuddly <laughs> okay but back up a second you know yeah. how we have the historical goth off yeah. yeah I just wanted to point out that if gay sex represents death then it is the gothest sex right yeah. yeah I would like to present the man spooning a skeleton as a contender the goth off <laughs> I think it needs to be like an honorable mention I don't think we can discuss its goth merits in any meaningful way given this entire yeah. mess but like honorable mention honorable yeah. mention okay, honorable okay. mention once again, before we continue, I just wanted to say another quick word about Studio, who are our sponsor for this episode. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, Studio makes quality headphones, which are very beautiful and have excellent sound quality. They make a variety of products. If you like headphones or earphones, wireless or with wires, they'll have something for you. So I encourage you to head over to their website, studio.com, S-U-D-I-O.com. And if you want to purchase anything there, you can use the promo code QueerAsFact, all one word, to get 15% off. So thank you to Studio. And now back to the episode. So yeah, basically the theory is these pots, or what's depicted on these pots, is somehow linked to uh, rituals and ceremonies involving passage to another world after death. I mean, if they're grave goods, 
And they are grave goods, but we do also know that they were used before being put in graves. So some of them have kind of marks of wear on them that show that they were used. They weren't just made and put in graves. So it's more like you put someone's favourite sex pot in their grave with them. Maybe so. Rather than... I mean, like, I I could say things, but I'd only be speculating. (laughs) It's fundamentally pointless that I hate this. (laughs) I'm sorry I brought you into a material culture episode. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the, um, the man with the skeletons boyfriend had passed away and they were like what would make you this weird little pot <laughs> that's true maybe the skeleton is the person in the grave and his boyfriend was like look we're still together maybe that's yeah. from the afterlife oh. yeah, yeah maybe this is just fan fiction <laughs> <laughs> in 1981 after all this weird early 20th century conversation happened a queer activist and University of California PhD candidate called Manuel Arboleda published a paper on the moche pots. And he analysed around 700 moche ceramic pieces, both including these sex ones and other ones, uh, looking not just at genitals as markers of gender, but at clothes, hairstyle, body paint, and accessories. Seems reasonable. Yeah. A good choice. Seems um, like it's going to be way less ambiguous, honestly, than the genital situation. Yeah, I mean, the genitals were pretty ambiguous. I mean, not all the time, but some of the time. Mm. And Arboleda, in particular, focused on two examples of what's called the preparation theme, and I'll describe what the preparation theme is in a minute, but it's a scene that's depicted on several of these pots. Mm-hmm. So it's worth noting that there are many examples of this scene. I think there's about 15 of them, and Arboleda only focused on the two which um, line up really well with his hypothesis. Okay. So we'll come back to that, but keep that in mind. Unlike the pots we've looked at so far, the preparation scene appears in relief around the side of a pot. So it's... Okay. Images around the edge of the pot rather than just the shape of the pot being the shape of two people having sex. So the scene appears to be a ritual of some sort. It takes place in a structure in which important activities like ritual sacrifice took place. And I mentioned before Rocca della Luna and Rocca del Sol and how they were temples and archaeological evidence of these same structures in which the preparation scene takes place have been found on the platforms of these temples. So in this series of scenes shown, there were three aspects to what's depicted on these pots. The first scene depicted shows two anthropomorphic figures preparing some sort of liquid substance. The second scene is a sex scene in which two figures are having sex while the liquid is poured over their genitals. And then the final part is an iguana-faced figure and a dog-like figure are praying. There's a lot going on. Got all that? (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) I can, I guess, see why someone jumped to hallucinations. That's an odd series of events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. We don't know exactly what all of this means, but it's probably some sort of ritual scene based on the fact that we've got these anthropomorphic figures, which gods are sometimes depicted in that way, and it's taking place in this structure where things like sacrifices took place. But we don't really know. The sex in the preparation scene has usually been interpreted as heterosexual vaginal sex between a supernatural being with fangs, who is generally considered to be male, and that's the active partner, and a um, reclining human figure with long hair, which, as I mentioned, is female-coded. And so she's generally considered, or they're generally considered to be female. So there's fangs. So there's fangs. We've moved into vampire sex from skeleton sex. Okay. Have we considered just holding up the moche people for the goth off? <laughs> the moche people. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should. So scholars have speculated that what this is is some sort of fertility ritual, but who knows, frankly. I mean, plausible. I mean, fertility ritual seems like a go-to. Yeah, 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 okay. Definitely, definitely. So 
Adelaide agrees, based on their headdress and their loincloth that they're wearing, that the fanged figure is male. But he argues that the other figure, while they have feminine braids, they're also wearing a loincloth and have uh, marks on their knees, which either represent painted knees or knee pads, we don't know which. And both the loincloth and the markings on the knees are coded masculine, usually. Okay. Okay. So Abelaida suggests that what we're actually looking at is sex between a man and a third gender person whose presentation includes aspects of both feminine and masculine gender markings. And he suggests that this person was biologically male but is playing a female social and sexual role in these images. It seems that he's chosen this specific interpretation that they are biologically male but playing a female role partly because they're the passive partner in sex and he's considered that the female role and partly because um, the most common queering of the gender binary that we have record of in pre-colonial America is somebody who's assigned male at birth but playing a female social role. That's not to say that people who are assigned female at birth but playing a male social role don't exist, but it is worth remembering that that comment I made about what genders exist in America applies across the Americas and not particularly to the Moche people, so we shouldn't use that as any definitive comment on Moche gender. Other scholars have tried to refute the idea that this person would have been assigned male at birth by pointing out that if you look at other instances of the preparation scene, and as I mentioned, there are several, this person is much more clearly biologically female. Given that they're wearing a male loincloth and have painted knees which are coded masculine, this doesn't preclude, but I would say supports the possibility of their gender expression being outside of the binary. Yeah. Yeah. Avalita's argument was largely ignored at the time by Moche scholars. Voloshin suggests that this is possibly because as a queer activist, he was considered to be too biased to really be taken seriously. Yeah, the other people are never biased. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mary, what's her name? She had no biases. (laughs) Yeah. Voloshin, for what it's worth, also argues that if Arbolita is correct in his reading, and Voloshin thinks he isn't because of this argument, a person assigned male at birth but playing generally female social roles would be indistinguishable from a woman in day-to-day life, and therefore, if we're going to call into question the gender of this person, we should call into question the gender and biological sex of anyone we've taken as being a woman depicted in moche art. And that's just too much to deal with. <laughs> yeah, that's just too much, and he's just like, nah, therefore that's not the case, and he just backs away. Who would have thought the gender of people on stylized pots is not immediately discernible? <laughs> yeah. But now hang on. Hang on. <laughs> this doesn't follow volition. Because, like... Like you've said about this person, they have some feminine-coded traits and some masculine-coded mm. traits, and we're looking at them and going, perhaps they're a third-gender person. That would make sense. Yeah. And Volition's going, wow, if you're questioning their gender, you need to question literally every gender. When, like, when we're talking about other examples, presumably there aren't these, like... Ambiguities. Ambiguities. There aren't sort of a mix of gendered traits. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I read this sentence that Volition wrote, like, ten times, trying to kind of figure that out, and I just couldn't, frankly. Although having said that, I feel like a like healthy re-examination of how we're gendering these figures is probably yeah. a good thing to do, given yeah. that if like people who have looked at these pots before have obviously been like, well, there's men and there's women, yeah. so let's divide up how we gender these pots. And, mm. you know, they've taken a bunch of signifiers and like split them into two categories and maybe, maybe not. How do we know that, like... It's plats and hats, right? How do we know that there's that's how male and female is? Plats and hats. Uh, the plats and hats came back. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, no yeah. Plats. How do we know that knee pads are exclusively masculine? Like, what? Like, help. Yeah, these are valid points, and um, in this case, Arbolator and I don't know because 
he wrote in Spanish, Arboleda analyzed some 700 different pots mm. and decided that loincloths and knee pads were masculine okay. and braids were feminine, but I can't tell you exactly what his methodology was or how yeah. he decided who was a man and a woman, because obviously you have to start with some basis of, I know this person is a man, to reach this conclusion. How did he do yeah. that? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at the end of it, if Volition's point is, what if many more of these people are not obviously masculine or feminine than we thought? Like, he's doing that thing where he's putting up what he thinks is an outlandish conclusion to make you see that your contention is ridiculous, <laughs> but his conclusion is completely reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're like, yeah, that's exactly right, Volition. Let's, let's have a look at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like that right-wing, are you saying housing should be free too thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's next, free healthcare? It's like, I mean, ideally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it is very much that. I think it is very much that. Yeah. I'm going to talk about another man who did decide to call everyone's gender into question, and it was bad. Oh. Oh. I'm sorry. A fun twist. <laughs> in, a, in a plot twist. As I mentioned, Arbolander's argument was not really picked up that much in circles of Moche scholarship. Yeah. But it was picked up in gender studies circles. And in these circles, Moche pots began to be used as evidence of the social acceptance of non-binary or third-gender people in pre-colonial American culture. Yeah. Often without kind of the caveats of what his methodology had been or, you know, things like the fact that he only analysed two examples of the preparation scene when there are 15 or so. It was just kind of taken as fact in gender studies circles. Okay. So we have a nice little spectrum of dodgy scholarship. Yeah. 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 Some scholars working off of this have then taken Abelator's observations that the reclining figure has both male and female aspects to their presentation and rather than seeing this as a representation of a non-binary or third gender individual who is just a part of the society, have instead seen a man forced into women's clothing as part of ritual humiliation. We had this in the Oshtish episode too. Yeah, we did. And it's actually the same man. Oh, oh well, there we go then. That's been discredited once. <laughs> yeah, you may remember this scholar. I can't remember how much I talked about him in the Oshtish episode. I definitely had a section where I was going to drag him in detail and be like, he said this quote. This quote is out of context. And I can't remember if I decided not to include that. But we've seen him. His name's Richard Trexler. We've seen him do bad scholarship before. He's back. Is this just something that he's made up? He's been like, why would a man wear women's clothing? Must be horrible. Mm. Yeah. Is there any actual evidence of this occurring in Indigenous American cultures? All the evidence I've read Richard Trexler giving, and I'm not talking about Moche here, I'm talking about more generally across his writing about the Americas, has been actively taken out of context to support his argument. Okay, so... I haven't read his whole book, but he's... I haven't chased up every source he's given, but... I mean, you don't have he's to. Do, he's not doing good scholarship. Okay. Okay. So, like, the onus is on him to prove that, and he's... Not done. He has not, not yet proven So I proven think that we can just dismiss that one for now, at least. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to explain how he argues this a bit, so right. you can be angry if sure. you want that in your life. I mean, this is, like, a major hobby of all of our lives, <laughs> yeah. this podcast, so... <laughs> So um, part of the basis of his argument is the idea that unlike a heterosexual vaginal sex, which takes place face to face with two equal partners, according to Richard, every right, time. Okay, so <laughs> no, go on. You good? Yeah. Sex acts such as oral sex and anal sex are inherently hierarchical. Has <laughs> has Richard Trexler ever had sex? I don't know. <laughs> has Richard Trexler ever spoken to a woman? I don't know. I mean, like, I hope not to be honest. <laughs> to spare half the population from him. 
Uh, he goes on to argue that since oral sex and anal sex can't be reproductive, and he says, quote, they are not meant to flaunt one's ability to reproduce oneself through sex. <laughs> they must be therefore, or meant being hierarchical, meant to flaunt your power and dominance over the other partner. All right. <sighs> Richard. Oh, my God. I mean, like, sometimes, but like it's not inherent. Yeah, to exactly. Like, not never, but not inherent. Yeah. Yeah, which is a terrible way to think about it. I was, yeah, I feel like this is telling us so much more about Richard and his sex life than it is about <laughs> Indigenous American cultures. I think that's true of a lot of these scholars, yeah. We learn more about them than we ever wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he goes on to argue that since genitals are not visible in many of these pots and we kind of have to speculate about gender, quote, There is little in these objects to prevent me from hypothesizing that most of the figures in the subordinate position were understood by contemporaries to be transvested males. His argument is like, yeah, maybe we should start questioning the gender of everyone we thought was a woman. Maybe they're all men who have been forced to dress as women for humiliation. Why um, would you make all these pots? Why is the skeleton here? <laughs> explains why the art skeleton is here but he basically argues that the pots are used to show a mochi ruler's dominance over their subjects so the active right. partner represents a mochi ruler and the passive partner represents their subjects just like the mochi people <laughs> yeah. dressed as a woman um i mean I, I don't feel like i really engage with that frankly like no no i can't prove that that's false but it doesn't sound I mean, very true an abstract representation of the Moche people is going to be ambiguously gendered anyway. For what it's worth, the scholar Peter Mason published a response to Trexler, in which he wrote, quote, There is no reason at all for the reader to follow Trexler in such groundless hypothesizing, end quote, and accused him of hobby-horsical dogma. <laughs> yeah, all right. He also noted that in the absence of contemporary sources, Trexler backs up a lot of his arguments with much later sources written about non-Moche cultures and usually written by 16th century Catholic Spaniards. Imagine if every time you wanted a fact about, like, Vietnamese culture, you read a source about China. Yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously these Spaniards, when they saw someone that they thought was a man dressed as a woman, went, oh, that must have been for humiliation, as we saw with Oshtish. Yeah. And, you know, that's not always the case. Perhaps not ever the case in this context. And Mason, as you commented about Trexler, Mason notes that these sources tell us a lot more about 16th century Spaniards than they do about Moche. So Mason and Trexler continued to write a lot of articles back and forth about this in what Volotin called an extremely fierce dispute. <laughs> I, I love it when this happens. <laughs> I love it when academics drag each other. I love it too. Unfortunately, Trexler's argument has been accepted by other scholars. So, ten years later, in 2007, ten years after he published his argument, the historian Raymond Gutierrez described mochi pottery as depicting, quote, slaves in women's clothes being passively penetrated in homosexual intercourse. And he used this in a greater argument that the lives of the Burdash were lives of humiliation and endless work, not of celebration and veneration. So, Burdash is an outdated word for the gender people. Gutierrez doesn't cite any source for this information, which worryingly suggests, and this does seem to be the case, that in some circles it's kind of become just an accepted common Mm. fact about pre-Columbian America. Like, any of the primary sources that you gave us about Mm Oshtish, and I know I'm like, we're definitely doing the thing here where the only sources I have about Indigenous America are about Oshtish and not the Moche people, Mm -hmm. did not give us any suggestion about a life of humiliation and drudgery. 
No, no. So, like we've established, there are not primary sources about the Moche people available. But the sources we have available about third gender people in other American cultures suggest that they were fairly well respected. Yeah, and that's what Gutierrez is trying to refute. But this is the evidence he's using. So, he's taking some wild speculation about some pots that we have no primary sources about over the actual, like, words of living humans. That's correct, yes. All right, mate. <laughs> That's the situation, unfortunately. At what point did the term birdash become outdated? Quite recently. So I think it was in, I can't remember the date, but in the 80s or 90s, there was a um, conference of what we now more commonly call two-spirit people in North America. And I don't know exactly what the norms are in South America. And obviously, because a lot of that is Spanish-speaking rather than English-speaking, it's going to be a whole different situation. But basically, a whole lot of people got together and said, we don't like the term birdash. We don't like the words that are being used for us. What word do we want to use? Mm. And okay. came up with two-spirit. But yeah, quite recently. Okay. Okay. But I mean, it was always a term that was applied on them from the outside. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, obviously, it was always a term applied by outsiders. And I'm not saying until the 80s, everyone yeah. was happy with birdash. I'm saying in the 80s and 90s was when people actively sat down and were like, this yeah. is the word we want you to use. We are not comfortable with birdash. And yeah. yeah, got together as a group and made that statement. But say someone writing in 2007 should not be using that word anymore. No. 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 Yeah, okay. No, and people still do use it, and scholars still do use it quite commonly, but it is... No good. No good. It's yeah, no good. I mean, yeah. But yeah, that's all the information I basically have to give to you. So I would say we do have depictions of homosexual mochi sex, and we may... Probably do also have depictions of mochi third gender people. We can't know what this says about mochi culture. Perhaps these are depictions of real people who were third gender and accepted in mochi culture. Perhaps this third gender identity is only in this ritual context that it's expressed, as that's the only place we have it depicted. We really don't know. Yeah. Monkeys are there, skeletons Monkeys are, there. are here, skeletons are here. But at the very least, we do know that we should be questioning any assumptions we're making about gender yeah. in material culture. I'm yeah. sad that we have learned more about bad scholarship than about the Mochi people, but I'm glad to have met Skeleton Man. Yeah, that is true. And Skeleton mm. Man and his fleshy boyfriend looked like <laughs> looked like they were like having quite a like tender, intimate, snuggling moment. Really, yes, they did. Yeah. Very good, very good. Okay, with that, we've been Crew's Fact. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Crew's Fact. And we're also able to be emailed directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. So thank you to Sondermite on Tumblr who suggested this episode to us. And Sondermite, I love it. Nice Queensbury reference there, friend. <laughs> and if anyone who's listening has any more suggestions, especially as this one about people who aren't from 19th and 20th century North America and Europe, we encourage you to send them to us. If you want to hear any more of our episodes, you can find them on Podbean, on iTunes, on Spotify, or wherever else you found this one. If you find us on iTunes, or if you don't and you just really love us, please go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review, because that really helps us to find more people who want to learn about queer history. To come out on the 22nd of this month, which was going to be on the miseducation of Cameron Post and But I'm a Cheerleader. But we will have lots of exciting content for you in the future. Lastly, we're going to be taking the month of November off, but we'll be back on the 1st of December with more queer history. 
with that out of the way, our next episode will be on the 1st of October, and that will be the much-anticipated episode about the Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde. And we're doing two parts on that, so that will be on the 1st and again on the 15th. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.